0: Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum.
1: And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We are your flu nerds in residence and the purpose of these podcasts is to give you a guide to all you need to know about the devastating 1918 Spanish influenza.
0: Today we're going to look at how the Spanish flu has been remembered. Something which we've both given a lot of thought to, haven't we, Hannah? Absolutely. Given that this is the centenary year of the
2: Spanish flu pandemic.
3: It's a memorial to the people who lived and the memorial to the people who helped each other.
2: At the end of October, we lost our first nurse with influenza pneumonia. And then on the 7th of November, I had to report the deaths of four more nurses. Episode 6, Remembering the Forgotten Pandemic.
1: In the late 1980s, the American historian Alfred Crosby described the Spanish flu as the forgotten pandemic. And this was a rather astute rebranding of his earlier 1976 book, Epidemic and Peace, released in the wake of the AIDS-HIV pandemic, then gaining so much attention in the United States. And many historians accepted this forgotten label, although I'm not sure it was as forgotten as we might think. But either way, there are certainly very few memorials in the world that do commemorate this pandemic.
0: So in the UK, there's only one substantial memorial to the Spanish flu. And that's the influenza pandemic window, which is found at the Church of St Augustine and St Philip in Whitechapel in East London. Now, most people know nothing about it. Indeed, I worked for many years just down the road at Queen Mary University. And it wasn't until two years into my tenure there that I was told about it and went to see it for the first time. It's a memorial made of glass, which is installed in the windows of this former church, but it was bombed out during the Second World War, and it's now the medical library of the Royal London Hospital.
1: It was devised by our resident flu virologist, Professor John Oxford, who collaborated closely with the German graphic artist Johannes Schreiter to design and install the window in 2002. John Oxford was inspired by Gauguin's triptych called Where Do We Come From? What Are We? Where Are We Going?, which now hangs in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Anyway, we visited the memorial window with John to understand a little bit more about it. John, you were instrumental in this window coming to pass. Can you tell me a little bit about it?
3: We organised a scientific meeting and we used this wonderful church. This was called the Cathedral of the East End, this church. It withstood the bombing attack, but the windows didn't. And so all these years later, the idea was to put windows in, have them designed by Dr. Schreiter, who's a glass artist. And so every window has got something to do with medicine and science. The windows collectively commemorate
0: medical themes pertinent to the Royal London Hospital. So for instance, we have the gastroenterology window, we have a window to HIV AIDS, and we have a window to the elephant man, Joseph Merrick, who lived not far from the hospital in Whitechapel Road, and ended up dying at the hospital in 1890.
1: It's the central window that commemorates the Spanish influenza pandemic. It's coloured purple with a zigzag line that shows the mortality graph of influenza from the late 19th to the early 20th century. The line starts low with a few small peaks and troughs before this huge spike in the winter of 1918 to 1919. And that was when the Spanish flu epidemic burned most fiercely, and deaths from flu and the related pneumonias in London were running at around 2,500 a week.
0: So the purple-tinted window and the blue window to its left reminded me of one of the most prominent features of the flu, namely this deathly blue discoloration of patients' faces and lips as their lungs filled with choking fluids. Physicians who tended to these pneumonia cases called it the blue death.
1: Yes, that's definitely how I interpreted it as well. But for John Oxford, the blue window in the first pandemic panel stands for something completely different. For him, it symbolises healing, and the purple panel symbolises the grief and suffering of those who gave their lives to save others.
3: This window offers a medal to the survivors for the work they did during this pandemic, whether they're a nurse or whether they're a doctor, the medals were not issued, but they helped someone else. There were more acts of bravery in 1918 in the pandemic than than there were in the first war, especially given the numbers. We are commemorating those acts of heroism. We are not commemorating particularly the numbers of people who died. It's a memorial to the people who lived and the memorial to the people who helped each other. There's
1: definitely a complexity about memorialising so many deaths. How on earth do we try to visualise and remember so many who died in this way? It's something that John Oxford has thought deeply about and he has his own technique for dealing with this conundrum.
3: Now, when I look at it, I just think of a few people. It's difficult to contend with 60 million dying. You just concentrate on a couple and multiply it up. And the person I see... In that window, I uh, see a nurse working as a VAD. Phyllis Burns, her name is. She volunteered to be a VAD. She was you know, 19 or 20, like Vera britain So she was a middle class woman thrown into this horror stuff on the Western Front. And she put up with it, survived, and helped for those years, for four years. And then when she came back, to London. She had aches and pains, tightness across her chest, cough, but she knew what she had. She had the Spanish flu because she'd been a nurse. She'd been nursing soldiers with it. And so she made her second decision, Phyllis, not to go and see her mother. Her mother's at Strawberry Hill because she might infect her own mother. You know, putting her life on hold to save her mother, my goodness. So she made that second decision and she sat it out in this little flat and didn't recover. She died of double pneumonia, super infection. So I see her So who was Phyllis Burns?
1: You remember, Mark, how John Oxford got permission to exhume the body of Sir Mark Sykes in search of the genes of the Spanish flu?
0: Oh yes, that was in our first gruesome episode.
1: Absolutely. Well, he did the same thing with Phyllis Burns. He identified her grave in Twickenham and then asked her family for permission to dig her up.
3: Her relatives said, look, we knew what she was like. And if Phyllis were here now, if we could ask Phyllis, could we... Open up your grave site. Would you mind giving some samples? She would say yes. That's the sort of person. I mean, that might be the extreme of the sort of person that you see in that window. That's the sort of thing that's going on.
1: So John thinks about Phyllis Burns when remembering the bravery and sacrifices of all of the nurses and doctors who died nursing patients with flu. For me, the person that comes to my mind is the volunteer nurse, Dorothea Crudson, who we talked about in episode three when we visited her grave at a tarp cemetery in France. It's got the British Red Cross and the Order of St John. It's one of those stories that's really stayed with me. And the bottom of Dorothea's tombstone reads, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Crudson, Nottingham. She was a voluntary nursing sister. She didn't have to be here, but she'd come here to look after the soldiers, look after the men, and ended up staying here for the last century.
0: So I want to introduce you to the person who I think about in this connection, and that's a British doctor called Basil Hood. Hood spent the early part of his career in Bow, which is not far from Whitechapel, where we can find the pandemic window today. But in 1910, he was the medical superintendent of St. Marylebone Infirmary, a poor law hospital in North Kensington, that specialised in training nurses. Eight years later, in 1918, when the influenza epidemic struck, he was plunged into the thick of it as his wards were inundated with ill patients. This was an experience that he would never forget, and although Hood survived, several of his nursing staff were not so lucky.
1: And I'm so pleased, Mark, that you took me to see Basil Hood's diary, now kept in the Welcome Collection in London, where it can be viewed by appointment.
0: This is Dr. Basil Hood's black book, as actual he's called diary. it. Actual
2: diary, wonderful.
1: His
0: actual diary is volume one. There are two volumes. So the situation in Britain during World War I is that something like half of all the doctors and nurses in the UK were called to northern France you know, to serve behind the lines and treat soldiers there. And Indeed, many of the nursing staff at Samaritan Infirmary were decorated for their service. You know, they came back with Red Cross medals and and other medals for sort of gallantry during that period. And it's in this context that the influenza epidemic Mm. then falls upon these wards.
1: So they'd already been sort of stripped bare of of staffing and Mm. were... Operating on a on a shoestring of nurses almost, right. and then this happens.
0: There are very few contemporary accounts written at the time, 1918, or very soon afterwards. I think that's what makes this extraordinary. It takes a while to get used to his handwriting. It does. Do, do you it's want to have a go, Hannah? I mean, I have the advantage that I've, yeah. I've deciphered it before.
1: It's certainly an archetypal doctor's handwriting. It looks like a spider has died a long death over the page. What's the date? October 1918 within a few days of receiving some 200 patients from Paddington Infirmary to make way for sick
2: soldiers. The great and awful influenza epidemic fell upon us, and under which the place literally reeled. All training, and indeed every sort of trimming, went by the board, whilst the staff fought like Trojans to feed the patients, scramble as best they could through the most elementary nursing, and keep the delirious in bed.
1: So that was one of the most fascinating for me aspects of the Spanish flu was the fact that many people suffered delirium and mental health disturbance during the pandemic. So he's describing that and clearly made an impression on him.
2: Each day, the difficulties became more pronounced as the patients increased and the nurses decreased. Sad to relate that some of these gallant girls lost their lives in this never-to-be-forgotten scourge. At the end of October we lost our first nurse with influenza pneumonia and then on the 7th of November I had to report the deaths of four more nurses, the last of them having only been with us four days.
1: It's quite hard to imagine how terrified they must have been seeing all these flu sick coming in knowing how contagious it was, seeing their comrades going down with it like nine pins as Basil Hood says, knowing that any one of them could be next and, and many of them were.
0: It must have been traumatic for Basil Hood seeing you know, these, these young nurses you know, laying down their lives for, for their colleagues and, and being frightened at the same time, it must have been terrifying.
1: For him it seems very very personal when his staff are the ones that are going down particularly with the backdrop of the war he says on page 133 here one poor nurse i remember
2: became so distressed she could not stay in bed and insisted on being propped up against the wall until she was finally drowned in her profuse thin blood-stained sputum i knew she was doomed and that her end was near so we did as she urgently desired us, making her as comfortable as possible. I have never really got over that time, and no wonder.
1: Wow, that's um, quite graphic, isn't it? And Hood writes.
2: This epidemic was certainly the worst and most distressing occurrence of my professional life.
0: One way of reading Hood's diary, his notebook, is that it's his active attempt to memorialize the bravery, courage and sacrifice of these nurses. Many of them have returned from the war where they've selflessly given themselves and been decorated. And the irony is terrible. You know, after surviving four and a half a years war, they come back here, and suddenly they're struck by the influenza. And it really brings it home to them when they see their colleagues falling ill, and they're put in this terrible dilemma. And, you know, he's full of you know, admiration and respect for them because they don't flee. On, on the contrary, they insist. On staying by their colleagues. He talks at one stage about how he designs these gauze
2: face masks for his staff to wear. I managed by constant exhortation to get the nursing staff to wear masks and to take some care not to interpose their faces too near the blast of those coughing. But some of the nurses
0: don't like wearing them particularly when they're nursing one of their sick colleagues. They'll suddenly think that
2: means my time is up. But when it came to nursing one of their own number, little that I could do or say had any effect.
0: Thus increasing the risk that they might get infected while they're nursing one of their colleagues. In total, nine nurses died. So that was the final tally, which in the context of the war, where they've already lost considerable numbers of nursing staff to the war effort, that's quite a blow.
1: It continues on page 132... I'd been finding it increasingly difficult to get about the place. We had no lifts that could be used by us when going from floor to floor. They were too slow in the week.
2: Some 15 or 16 hours a day was required of me as well as night calls. All the work had to be done at top speed and the stress and distress of coming in at the end of four and a half years of war finally proved too much for me. So that at the end of November, I became incapable of continuing and was given three months sick leave. He's added other details at a later oh, date.
1: Fantastic. So
2: what has he written there in this?
1: He's plan? he's added in a, a black biro at a later date, it seems, I could barely stand and always, when possible, against a wall, so he's utterly exhausted by the experience, and he's also underlined various aspects on this page, particularly the a bit about this pandemic all coming at the end of four and a half years of war. He's, he's underlined that in black pen. Entitled the page as well. It wasn't titled the influenza epidemic until after he's gone back with this black pen and really highlighted that this is what happened.
0: And I think that's one of the interesting things about this document as a site of memory for this influenza pandemic, this extraordinary event in Dr. Basil Hood's life, in that he's recorded what happened at the time. But then later in his career, presumably before he decided this was an important document to be preserved, he went over sections in different ink and clarified passages or added facts and details.
1: St Malavone admitted 850 flu patients during the influenza pandemic and 197 of those died. Sadly, eight of them were pregnant women whose weakened immune systems made them especially susceptible to the flu. For Hood, it's very much the nurses who were front and centre of getting through this pandemic. And Mark, I think this really reflects what John Oxford said about the the window in Whitechapel, where he saw the the nurses and the doctors as, as absolutely central. Why do you think there are so few memorials to this pandemic? What is it about this pandemic that didn't generate that kind of memorialisation?
3: It was a different world. And I think they faced out that First World War. They came back to this landfit fit for heroes, which it was not. And they faced out the pandemic quietly themselves in people's homes. There was a memory of it and thoughtfulness, but they didn't go around shouting about it.
1: I'm not sure I agree completely with John here. As we know, the Spanish flu peaked in the final year of the First World War. For me, many of the letters that I've read in the Richard Collier collection held at the Imperial War Museum, they show that people who lived through the Spanish flu often experienced it as part and parcel of the war experience. For many of them, I think that war memorials would have also stood in their minds in memory of those they lost from the flu as well as from the war. But certainly John is right in saying there are no state memorials for flu like there were for war. The government would have wanted to memorialise the deaths of people as having been in the service of the nation, all about glory, bravery, sacrifice. We just don't glorify death from disease in the same way that we do death from war.
0: The other thing I think we've got to remember about flu is that flu isn't ordinarily thought of as a terrifying disease. Susan Sontag writes that in contrast to HIV-AIDS, influenza never invoked the deepest dread, even though it killed lots of people. They never thought of it at the time as this terrible thing. It struck a cross-section of society, so it wasn't like individuals or particular groups were stigmatized in the way they were during the HIV-AIDS pandemic. And that meant that there wasn't a sort of social and political movement after the pandemic passed to honour and recognise people who died and were buried hurriedly. So Hannah, you said at the beginning that you have an issue with this characterisation of the pandemic as the forgotten pandemic. But I think it's certainly the case that for the first 50 years after the 1918 pandemic, it was kind of ignored by historians.
1: Definitely, and it wasn't until the 70s really, the first seeds of historical attention were sown. And that's ramped up in the, the last few decades until now when there's a lot more interest.
0: I would agree with you, since the 1970s and especially since the AIDS pandemic, there's been a tremendous interest in historians going back and trying to recover these experiences and show how they were important in history. And we also have a much better handle on how many people died. So in the 1920s, people estimated the global death toll as something like 21 million. Today it's estimated to be between 50 and 100 million. So that raises its historical significance to a much higher level. So I agree, it's not forgotten. And now in this centenary year, publishers are bringing out new books, There are exhibitions in Washington, but also in London. The BBC's making a major historical drama all about the Spanish flu pandemic. So it's being commemorated in ways that make it very, very present in our culture.
1: Absolutely, and perhaps the occasion of the centenary of the pandemic is an opportunity to remember the sacrifices of these forgotten fallen, these nurses and doctors who battled the Spanish flu. You can find out more about the amazing nurses and doctors who fought the Spanish flu by visiting the Florence Nightingale Museum's Spanish Flu Exhibition, which opens in London on the 21st of September 2018.
0: So in the next episode, we'll be bringing our story bang up to date by looking at what we're calling the pandemic fear industry. I still think it's a fair thing to say that this is one of the most dangerous flu viruses one can make. There's no doubt about it. Now, how dangerous that virus really is, is something that's then not shown in the broadcast. Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum.
1: And me, Hannah Mortsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode.
0: And we'd love you to rate us too.
1: Get in touch with us on Twitter at goingviral_pod. pod.
0: Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald.
2: And the series is supported by The Welcome Trust.